Welcome to the Facts Are What Matter podcast, where we discuss the lies, the myths, and the propaganda being promoted by the media and society. Let's all be informed, not uninformed, or even worse, misinformed. Here we go. Welcome to the Facts Are What Matter. In today's episode, I call Guns, Drugs, and Tucker Carlson. The truth could get you fired. Now, after the recent spate of active shooter attacks around the country, the course of gun control is being shouted once again. The misplaced sentiment is that if we could just limit who has guns, or AR-15s in particular, then we could stop these mass murders. The reality is that there are more guns than people in this country. There are around 330 million people and an estimated 434 million guns. Now, short of kicking in doors and searching houses, it would take many, many decades for all the guns, the equipment, and the ammunition to be confiscated and destroyed, and even then the bad guys would find a way to have a weapon. The truth is that a semi-automatic rifle, such as an AR-15, is not the weapon of choice for most murders and not necessarily for mass murders either. The most popular firearm of choice for most shooters is a handgun. In fact, one of the country's deadliest mass shooting events ever was at Virginia Tech University back in 2007, and it was carried out with handguns. In a more recent event, 62 people were injured and six were killed from being mowed down with an SUV at the 2021 Waukesha, Wisconsin Christmas Parade. The brothers Tarznoff placed two homemade pressure cooker bombs by the roadside of the Boston Marathon in 2013, killing three people and injuring hundreds. And of course, there is 9-11, where airplanes were used to kill thousands of people. When people want to vent their rage... When people want to kill someone, finding a weapon is hardly a problem. According to FBI statistics, more people are killed with fists and feet than rifles, of which an AR-15 is a type of rifle. How did we go from high school boys carrying their deer rifles and shotguns in their pickups for decades with no issues to people walking in schools and shooting them up? The guns didn't change. A gun is an inanimate object. A gun can't point itself and pull the trigger. A person has to do that. What issue did these people have that pushed them to acquire one or more weapons, ammunition, load them, travel to a school or business, and commit not only murder, but most definitely suicide? We have politicians pushing legislation to ban ghost guns and bump stocks, which will do absolutely nothing, but it certainly makes it look like they're doing something And admittedly, they are doing something, something absolutely useless. Now, others have blamed the problem on internet chat rooms and porn addiction and violent video games and even violent cartoons. What are we not hearing about? How about psychoactive drugs? How about Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and the whole list of drugs that fall under the umbrella of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors otherwise known as SSRI medications. Do we ever hear about medications that these mass murderers were on? Nope. Was the recent trans shooter at the Nashville School on Paxil or Zoloft or most likely testosterone supplements? If someone can get rage issues from steroids, what might testosterone supplements do? You'd have to think that someone with gender dysphoria issues might be taking psychoactive drugs as well. Did anyone ask the question? Of course not. They were too busy protesting gun control and trans rights. 
Now, I'm going to be pulling liberally from the Substack articles of a Midwestern doctor who has written very two very lengthy articles on SSRI issue and a somewhat shorter summary version. Now, if you have the time, I would def, they're definitely worth your read, and I'll have a, have a link to those in my Substack article. Now, let me say up front that if you or someone you know is taking one of these drugs, it is important that you do not discontinue or even reduce your medication without medical supervision. This article and this podcast is not to be taken as medical advice. Now, one of the issues seen with these psychoactive drugs is a condition known as akathisia. A Midwestern doctor writes about it. He says, akathisia and psychosis are known side effects of cocaine, methamphetamine, SSRIs, antipsychotics, and ADHD stimulant medications. However, while the common triggers have been identified, the actual mechanisms for akathisia is still poorly understood and theorized to result from alterations in the center of the brain involved in movement. Now, these behavioral changes are so unusual and disturbing, they're often described as the individual appearing to be possessed. Now, not everyone has a bad experience on these type of drugs. You may be taking them and be just fine, or maybe some you know is, and probably a lot of people you know are. Evidently, there are genetic variations in people that make them react negatively to these SSRI medications. For those that do have issues with these drugs, the consequences can be deadly, both for them and those around them, as discussed in a medical journal study that that we're going to quote. So here's examples. Male, 18 years. Prozac, sister was comatose after a car crash. Violent akathisia for 14 days, killed his father four days after he ran out of pills. A male, 35 years old, Paxil, distressed by on and off relationship with the mother of his child. He stabbed his former partner 30 times to death after 11 weeks of akathisia. Male, 46, Paxil, anxiety about not making enough money to support the family. He killed his son in a manic shift akathisia and delirium after 42 days. Male, 16 years, Zoloft and Prozac, depressed, struggled at school, and the girlfriend left him, attempted suicide on both drugs, killed the therapist in the hospital after 11 weeks. Male, 50 years, Effexor, distress after divorce, shot a stranger four days after stopping the drug. Female, 35 years, Nortripoline, Distressed due to husband's drinking, killed teenage daughter in toxic delirium after three days. Male, 24 years, Lexapro, anxiety and illicit substance abuse. Several suicide attempts and assaults, nearly killed partner, 12 years in jail for attempted murder. Female, 26 years, several SSRIs, difficulties with in-laws, two attempts to kill her two children. Female, 52 years, Paxil and Selexa. Harassment at work, suicide attempt, and tried to kill her two children. Female, 25 years, Selexa and Effexor, marital distress, several suicide attempts on both drugs, jumped in front of a train with her child while on Cetolopram. Then there is a tragic case of Woody Witsack. His wife Kim writes about it on her Substack channel, Unacceptable Collateral Damage. She writes, Woody had just started his dream job as vice president of sales with a startup company 
two months prior and started having trouble sleeping, which is not uncommon for entrepreneurs. So Woody went to see his doctor and was given the antidepressant Zoloft off-label for insomnia. Now The doctor said Zoloft would take the edge off and help him sleep. Five weeks later, Woody took his own life. The three-week Pfizer-supplied sample pack that Woody came home from the doctor with automatically doubled the dose, unbeknownst to him, from 25 to 50 milligrams after week one. At this time, there were no suicide or other cautionary warnings on antidepressants about the need to be closely monitored when first going on the drug or dosage changes. In fact, I was out of the country on business for the first three weeks he was on the drug. Within days, Woody experienced many known side effects like profuse night sweats, diarrhea, trembling hands, and worsened anxiety. He also experienced other side effects like akathisia, known only to drug companies, the FDA, but not to Woody, his doctor, or his family. Now, Woody was extremely sensitive to foreign substances in his body and deathly allergic to penicillin. He didn't like to take over-the-counter medications like Sudafed, Excedrin or NyQuil, or to drink caffeine or have more than one glass of wine or beer. Shortly before Woody died, I found him curled up in a fetal position on the kitchen floor, holding his head like a vice, crying, Help me, help me. I don't know what is happening to me. I'm losing my mind. It's like my head is outside my body looking in. We calmed him down, and Woody called his doctor, but he was told he needed to give the off four to six weeks for the drug to kick in. Over the next week, Woody, optimistically, was looking for ways to beat this feeling in his head. A week later, I was out of town, and when I hadn't heard from Woody all day, I asked my dad to go to our house and check on him. I'll never forget my dad's words that changed my life forever. Woody's dead. Woody was found hanging from the rafters of the garage. Now, in a review of several SSRI studies that were made public, by the pharmaceutical companies, it was found that taking these SSRI medications resulted in hostile events for many of the subjects. The the study goes on to state, in healthy volunteer studies, hostile events occurred in three of 271, 1.1% of the volunteers taking Paxil compared with zero of 138 taking placebo. Now, I don't know about you, but I think 1.1% is not insignificant when millions of people in the U.S. are taking this drug. The study also says, in data from sertraline pediatric trials submitted by Pfizer, aggression was the most common cause for discontinuation, which means removal from trial, from the two Zoloft placebo-controlled trials in depressed children. In these trials, eight of 189 patients randomized to Zoloft were discontinued for aggression, agitation, or hypokinesis, which is another term for akathisia, frequently used to conceal it, compared with no discontinuations for these reasons in the 184 patients on placebo. When discontinuations for any manifestation of treatment included activation, suicidal ideation or attempts, aggression, agitation, hyperkinesis, or aggravated depression. When those were considered, there were 15 discontinuations on Zoloft compared with two on placebo, which meant this was 7.3 times more likely to happen when on sertraline, which sertraline is Zoloft. 
In pediatric trials of Effexor, 2% of children dropped out because of hostility, more than double the rate of dropout on placebo. Now what about mass shooter events, you may be asking? Where are those? And again, I'm pulling liberally from a Midwestern doctor's um, substack. In one of the many, one of the more comprehensive summaries, it was written in 2013, which attempted to analyze all known shootings. Here, here we have Eric Harris, age 17, first on Zoloft, then on Luvox, and Dylan Klebold, age 18, Columbine School shooting in Littleton, Colorado, killed 12 students and one teacher and wounded 23 others before killing themselves. Klebold's medical records have never been made available to the public. Jeff Weiss, age 16, had been prescribed 60 milligrams per day of Prozac, three times the average starting dose for adults, when he shot his grandfather, his grandfather's girlfriend, and many fellow students at Red Lake, Minnesota. He then shot himself, 10 dead, 12 wounded. Corey Badsgard, age 16, while Luke Washington State High School was on Paxil, which caused him to have hallucinations. When he took a rifle to his high school and held 23 classmates hostage, he has no memory of the event. Christopher Pittman, age 12, murdered his grandparents while taking Zoloft. Kip Kinkle, age 15, on Prozac and Ritalin, shot his parents while they slept and then went to school and opened fire, killing two classmates and injuring 22 shortly after beginning Prozac treatment. Luke Woodham, age 16, Prozac, killed his mother and then killed two students, wounding six others. A boy in Pocatello, Idaho, on Zoloft in 1998, had a Zoloft-induced seizure which caused an armed standoff at his school. Michael Carneal, Ritland, age 14, opened fire on students at a high school prayer meeting in West Paducah, Kentucky. Three teenagers were killed. Five others were wounded. Andrew Golden, age 11, Ritalin, and Mitchell Johnson, age 14, Ritalin, shot 15 people, killing four students, one teacher, and wounding 10 others. T.J. Solomon, age 15, Ritalin, high school student in Conyers, Georgia, opened fire and wounded six of his classmates. James Wilson, age 19, various psychiatric drugs from Breenwood, South Carolina, took a 22 caliber revolver into an elementary school, killing two young girls and wounding seven other children and two teachers. Elizabeth Bush, age 13, Paxel, was responsible for a school shooting in Pennsylvania. Jason Hoffman, Effexor and Selexa, school shooting in El Cajon, California. Neil Furrow, Prozac, in a L.A. Jewish school shooting reported having been court-ordered to be on Prozac along with several other medications. Haman Mimon, age 15, shot and killed a fellow middle school student. He had been diagnosed with ADHD and depression and was taking Zoloft and other drugs for his conditions. Matt Sari, a 22-year-old culinary student, shot and killed nine students and a teacher and wounded another student before killing himself. Sari was taking an SRSRI and benzodiazepine. Steve Kazmarek, age 27, shot and killed five people and wounded 21 others before killing himself in a Northern Illinois University auditorium. According to his girlfriend, he had been recently taking 
Prozac, Xanax, and Ambien. Toxicology results showed that he still had trace amounts of Xanax in his system. Finnish gunman Pika Eric Avin, age 18, had been taking antidepressants before he killed eight people and wounded a dozen more at Jokela High School, and then he committed suicide. Asa Kuhn from Cleveland, age 14, shot and wounded four before taking his own life. Court records show that Kuhn was on Trazodon, Don. John Romano, age 16, on medication for depression, fired a shotgun at his teacher in his New York high school. And just a reminder, this is from an article written in 2013, so there's sure to be many, many more today. It used to be that you could talk about the potential of drugs being part of the problem, and the ultra-liberal Michael Moore knew that, and he even put out a documentary about the Columbine High School shooting where he questioned the drugs and the kids were on. This is, this is what he said. In Bowling for Columbine, uh, we never really came up with the answer in terms of why this happened. I think we did a good job of exposing all the reasons that were given were a bunch of BS. You know, Marilyn Manson caused them to do it. This, this, or that caused them to do it. And none of it really made any sense. That's why I believe there should be an investigation in terms of what pharmaceuticals, prescribed pharmaceuticals, these kids were on. And, and perhaps uh, parents, it would have a shocking, um, it would just would be shocking, I think, to the millions of parents who prescribed this for their kids if, they, if it was finally explained to them, if this is the case, that this perhaps occurred for no other reason other than because of these prescriptions. Imagine what that would do. Imagine how people would totally rethink things, grasping for every little straw they can to explain why something like Columbine happens, when in fact it may be nothing more than this. How else do you explain two otherwise decent kids, very smart, no history of violence to other kids in the school? Why them? Why did this happen? It's an extremely legitimate question to pose and it demands uh, an investigation. The Eli Lilly Corporation, a pharmaceutical company, for uh, nearly 15 years covered up their own internal investigation that showed that anyone on Prozac uh, is 12 times more likely to attempt suicide than those using other antidepressants, not 12 times more than the average population, 12 times more than those already on other antidepressants. This is a criminal act. And I want to know why these criminals are still walking the streets. Now, in our current atmosphere, no one is allowed to publicly ask questions that might paint the pharmaceutical industry in a negative light. Doing so will get you censored on Twitter and Facebook, They might even take away your ability to get donations or use payment platforms. They might limit your ability to use the banking system like they did to the vaccine protesting truckers in Canada. Now, since Big Pharma is the largest advertiser on broadcast and cable TV networks, it would be financial suicide by the media to publish or air anything that might damage their cash cow. Now, my theory has been that Tucker Carlson was canned from Fox News because Big Pharma either threatened Rupert Murdoch 
Or maybe Murdoch himself may have felt the threat of advertiser fallout. Remember, this happened just after the huge Fox News settlement with Dominion. Now, recently, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had a discussion with Megyn Kelly on her show, which adds some credence to my theory. Here's here's some uh, discussion. I did see you tweet that you thought maybe the, one of the reasons he was axed was because, yes, he spoke it out on Ukraine in much in the way you just did, but you thought it may have, had to do, may have had to do with Big Pharma. Now, you and I discussed the last time in depth about how it is very true that Big Pharma finances most big media. I mean, they're all over big media. They pay half the bills of these companies, and it's it's potentially perilous to speak out against them, against the vaccine and so on. He was doing that, but that's just your supposition, right? You don't have any inside knowledge on that being the reason Tucker got my supposition, you know, on on that particular transaction. But um, in 2014, I had a conversation with Roger Ailes and that has bearing on that this, you know, on my kind of the background of my assumptions going into this. But anyway, he 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 knew about this issue as far as a pharmaceutical relationship with neurological injuries to children. And he believed that a family member of his had been possibly injured. And we had at that point made a documentary that looked at all these issues, the science behind these issues. And I was promoting it. I went and showed it to him and I showed it to Michael Clemente and other people at Fox News and they loved it. Roger brought me into his office and he said, I cannot help you on this one. Cause he always, you know, Megan, when, when I wanted to, I was the only environmentalist who was going on Fox News. At that time. I went on Sean Hannity's show very, very regularly. I did Neil Cavuto. I did Bill O'Reilly. I did all the major shows at Fox because I call up Roger and say, I have an issue I want to talk about, about warming or pollution or whatever. And he would, uh, he would, uh, he would get me onto these shows. When I asked him about this show, about the vaccine show, he said, I can't do that for you, Bobby, because if any of my hosts allowed you onto a show without asking my permission, I would have to fire them. And if I didn't fire them, I would get a phone call from Rupert within 10 minutes. And so that so I, this was part of the background of my assumption that, OK, if you talk about this on Fox, you're going to get fired. And that's what mm. Roger said. And, by, and since then, and he told me at that time. He said, uh, so he, I think he said 75 percent of the of the uh, primetime news hour uh, revenues come from pharmaceutical companies. And he also said, as I remember, that 17 out of 22 ads on the typical evening news show are pharmaceutical ads. That's what he told me. And and so then when I saw Roger, when I saw Tucker the night he introduced me. And we had an interview, but before he introduced me, he did this long monologue about how the pharmaceutical companies were controlling content on network news and how bad it was for our country. The other channels took hundreds of millions of dollars from big pharma companies, and then they shilled for their sketchy products on the air. And as they did that, they maligned anyone who was skeptical of those products. At the very least, this was a moral crime. It was disgusting, but it was universal. It happened across the American news media. They all did it. So at this point, the question isn't who in public life is corrupt, too many to count. 
The question is, who is telling the truth? And I was sitting there saying, that is exactly what Roger said he would get fired for if any knew, if anybody on network news did that. So when he was fired five days later, I disconnected some dots. But, you know, wow. I'm sure they had, I know they had other reasons to fire Tucker. There were other things Maybe. that they didn't like about what he was doing. He wasn't, you know, bucking the, the trend. But it, but it shows that because he had this enormous popularity. His show was... But he was getting 3.5 million uh, viewers a night on an average night, 5 million on a good night. Um, that's CNN gets, I think, about 350,000. So he was getting 10 times what CNN was doing. He was such a huge revenue generator for that network. And what his firing showed is that the ideology and uh, it trumps popularity and even revenues that they were willing to get rid of a guy like that because he wouldn't, uh, you know, he wouldn't follow the narrative. Now you may be asking, what did Tucker say that was so damaging? Well, I'll let you decide. But we want to begin tonight with what in any normal period would be front page news around the world. It turns out the entire premise behind the most commonly prescribed antidepressant drugs appears to be completely wrong. These drugs are known as SSRIs. They're ubiquitous. Between 1991 and 2018, total SSRI prescriptions in the U.S. rose by more than 3,000%. The number of prescriptions for the most common SSRIs hit 224 million last year. 224 million prescriptions in a country of 330 million people. In other words, you know dozens of people who are taking SSRIs. You may be taking them right now. And yet for decades, there have been strong indications that there is a problem with these drugs. And the most obvious is this. Antidepressants are supposed to cure depression. That's why they're prescribed. And yet over the same period that SSRI prescriptions have risen 3,000%, The suicide rate, maybe the most reliable indicator of all of depression, has not fallen in the United States. In fact, the suicide rate has jumped by 35%. That's a huge increase. That's a lot of dead people. Now, drug makers admit that their products may be part of the reason for the increase in suicide. The makers of Prozac, for example, concede that young people who take that drug have an increased risk of suicide compared to those who took a placebo. Think about that for a second. A drug that's supposed to make you less sad may make it more likely that you will kill yourself. How is that allowed? Well, it's been allowed because virtually no one has said a word about it. One person who did say something about it a long time ago was the actor Tom Cruise. All the way back in 2005, he had a very famous appearance on the Today Show. You may remember it. Here it is. Here we are today where I talk out against drugs and psychiatric abuses of electric shocking people, mm-hmm. okay, against their will, of drugging children with them not knowing the effects of these drugs. Do you know what Adderall is? Do you know Ritalin? Do you know now that Ritalin is a street drug? Do you understand that? Aren't there examples, and might not Brooke Shields be an example of someone who benefited from one of those drugs? All it does is mask the problem, Matt. And if you understand the history of it, it masks the problem. That's what it does. That's all it does. 
You're not getting to the reason why. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance. Drugs aren't the answer. That these, these drugs are very dangerous. They're mind-altering, antipsychotic drugs. And there are ways of doing it without that so that we don't end up in a brave new world. So Cruz said a few things. One, maybe you shouldn't trust the pharma companies and just hand your children whatever they're producing and hope for the best. Two, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance in your brain that causes depression. He said that. And three, these drugs mask the real problems. You're suffering for a real reason that drugs can't fix. Provocative statements. How did the country respond to this? Well, everyone in the media agreed. Tom Cruise is crazy. He's in a cult. Shut up. A lot of people thought that. We may even have thought that. But then more information kept coming out that made Tom Cruise look a little less crazy. In 2015, researchers from the scientific journal BMJ found that, quote, some birth defects occur two to three and a half times more frequently, a lot more frequently, among the infants of women treated with SSRIs early in pregnancy. Wow, that's a huge problem. Ignored. In the same journal in 2020, researchers found that, quote, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction is underrecognized and can be debilitating both psychologically and physically. Well, that's kind of a problem, too. If it steals your sex drive, maybe it's stealing your soul? Hmm, no, ignore it. Only cult members care. Then last year, researchers in Sweden found that, quote, there may be an increased hazard of violent crime during SSRI medication in a small group of patients. It may exist across age groups and throughout treatment periods, and it possibly persists for up to 12 weeks after treatment discontinuation. So even after you stop taking the drugs, you may be impotent, infertile, violent. But at least the drugs cure the chemical imbalance in your brain that causes your depression. That was the selling point. What a great piece of marketing that was. You've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. You need these drugs. And so hundreds of millions of prescriptions every year for these drugs. Well, in what seemed like news to us, last week we learned that actually SSRIs don't cure a chemical imbalance in your brain. So the acronym SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. The theory was, has been for 30 years, that depressed people have an imbalance of serotonin in their brains. They have a chemical imbalance. If you give them more serotonin, then they become less depressed and happy. They're less likely to kill themselves, right? But it turns out that serotonin deficiencies are not the reason people get depressed. That's not just a guess, it's now officially science. This new finding comes from University College London, just completed a long and huge study on the relationship between depression and serotonin. It was published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. Here's what the lead author of that study, Joanna Moncrief, said about the findings. Quote, I think we can safely say, after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. What? That was the whole premise of the drug which virtually the entire American population was taking on their doctor's advice. And by the way, the drug companies made billions off those drugs. So first we were told that SSRIs would save lives. Now we learn they don't actually work as intended. In fact, the whole idea behind the drug was completely wrong. And yet, and here's the best part, People are ignoring this news, and the drugs are still being prescribed. 
How can that happen in a country based on science? Well, as it turns out, and this is the real point, that happens all the time. Now, again, if you or someone you know is on one of these drugs, do not stop taking them all of a sudden. This article, this podcast is not medical advice. Talk with your doctor that prescribed them to you. In conclusion, it's time for the nation to take a hard look at the potential link between these SSRI-based medications and the mass violent events that we see today. It's way past time to stop blaming the guns and the video games. It's time we take a hard look at what is driving these people to want to kill. Maybe it's not the guns. Maybe it's the drugs. Thanks for listening to the Facts Are What Matter podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to catch our future episodes.